back everybody to overdue rentals where we talk about films that we think are a little overdue for you to see stuff that may have been once very popular but kind of forgotten about or things we think never really got a fair shake back in the day i'm matthew shuckman and i'm mike reyes and today we have a guest uh carl holt the writer director star maybe more of the new horror comedy, Benny Loves You. Maybe more. And uh, part of that maybe more is also uh, Carl's pick for this week's Overdue Rental, which is the 1988 remake of The Blob. Yeah, yeah. And um, before, we, before we go more into, into that, actually, uh, just a little rundown for those who don't know. Benny Loves You, again, is a horror comedy, which is, in essence, very short. I'll give you the very short briefing here. Uh, it, it just come out uh, for, for all of us to see uh, this Friday, uh, which is uh, May 7th. It's basically a film about uh, an adult male who's still kind of not grown mentally, you know, still lives at home with the family, doesn't really excel at his job, still has all of his toys laying around. And when an unfortunate accident changes things in his life, he gets rid of his toys, but one of them comes back with a vengeance. Ah, uh, you know, it's that kind of stuff that Pixar likes to make into movies, but they water it down in the last draft, damn it. Well, Although, yeah, I mean, this, 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 as, as, as you may hear, this, this uh, is maybe, maybe a more adult version of, of some old Pixar favorites. <laughs> and then, of course, you know, The Blob is a remake of uh, Maurice Lepeau's Les Bleubes de Pennsylvania. <laughs> it's a remake of the 1950 it's the remake of the the classic sci-fi film where a amorphous blob cannot be bargained or reasoned with and likes to eat now before we go too much further i just want to drop something in very quickly a little bit of housekeeping if you like our show if you think our voices are wonderful and dulcet and as silky as the jackets we are currently wearing Hello. you can subscribe and like us on all major platform, pretty much all major podcast platforms. And should you want to get a hold of us, we are available on Twitter at Rentals Overdue, on Facebook at Overdue Rentals, on Instagram at Overdue Rentals Show, and at Overdue Rentals at gmail.com. Should you want to email us and give us a rental you believe is long overdue? Yes, just like Carl's Choice, the 1988 remake of The Blob, which is it's so strange because when he said that was the film he wanted to talk about, I was dumbfounded that we still haven't put it on our list to talk about because it really is the perfect type of overdue rental. Even whether it was back when it came out or now, like nobody really talks about it as much as they should. And it's great to have to be able to shine a light on it. It is because I have been long overdue to rent it because of just it's it's sort of a mythic profile with some in the in the in the podcasting circuit even uh i'm just gonna throw a shameless plug for a, a competition slash influence uh junk food cinema did a really good multi-part episode about the blob and just listening to that episode and the reverent tones that we're talking about this you even just watch the trailer and you think this looks better than most 80 most of the typical 80s horror movies like you're looking you, you hear the blob 80s re horror remake you're thinking something more lines of the along the lines of the movie that's shown in there garden to a massacre but it's yeah. a re it's a movie that stands up to time 
and is genuinely good. It also marks some of the early phases of uh, some talent that we uh, have known for the past couple of years, uh, Chuck Russell and Frank Darabont. Yeah. And, uh, well, I, you know, it's funny. Um, I, was, I was looking up some stuff about it to remind myself. And again, this is a movie that I definitely saw a lot when I was a kid. This is very proto of that was on HBO a lot when it came to cable. Oh, and I always yeah. watched it when it was on uh, and have very fond memories. Like when I was a child, yes, I may have been scared by some horror films here and there. Not that, not that much, but this is one of those ones that I just remember seeing and just kind of being amazed with more than anything else. And just kind of like, yeah, I keep wanting to watching that. It didn't gross me out. It didn't freak me out. It didn't scare me. I didn't have to run, you know, thinking that the blob was after me or anything like that. I was, I was kind of fascinated with it. But yeah, yeah. Oh, mm. well, I was going to say that, you know, Chuck, Chuck and, and Frank, you know, I, I apparently because they also co-wrote and Chuck, Chuck uh, directed, but they co-wrote Nightmare on Elm Street 3 together. And apparently Frank Darabout was a was a PA on a film that they were both working on and they just kind of got talking about it and, uh, you know, teamed up to when when one of them was offered to write the do Nightmare on Elm Street. And so that's how the powerhouse that is today, Frank Darabout, kind of got started. Uh, and, you know, for those of you out there who are scratching your heads and trying to root around, it happens to me sometimes, you're hearing that name, Frank Darabont, and you're thinking, why should I know that? Um, he made an indie film known as The Shawshank Redemption, which in its time was an overdue rental because bombed in theaters, but became a huge hit on cable and home video. Yeah. And then went on and did other things like The Mist, uh, he was the first showrunner for Walking Dead for a season. Technically, um, technically, he bought. I mean, he. If you want to call, I mean, it's hard to say creator because you know, Kirkman was there. He did create the comic, and he was there. But Tarabat was the one who wanted to bring it to TV, so he technically did create it for TV in essence. Yeah, and then unfortunately, it got mired in a lot of uh, legal sort of uh, trappings. And I think, if I remember correctly, AMC was kind of pitching him. So how about we do episodes where you hear the zombies outside, but you don't see them for budget? Imagine them telling them that, telling this current showrunner that. It's like, uh, the budget. I, I'm not going to go into a lot, you know, and I definitely yeah. love The Walking Dead for a, for a fair amount of time. And I don't want, because right it's getting off the point. I don't want to go into it. But from what I heard, from what he planned on doing with the show, I'm glad he, was, I'm glad he wasn't there, honestly. We'll have to talk about that off air because yeah. I want to talk about that, but we don't want to, we obviously don't want to take up too much time before we get to our new near and dear friend, Carl Holt. Yeah. So let's get Carl in here. All right. Over to rentals. Scene four, episode four, Carl Holt, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome, Carl. Thank you for joining us here at Over to Rentals. Hi there. Nice to see you both, Matthew and Mike. So when it comes to Benny Loves You, was this something that's been, been, Growing, growing up in your mind for a it's bit? Been, yeah, it was actually based on a short that we made over 10 years ago. Uh, it was called Eddie Loves You. And that was made with a, a little Elmo toy. And that was really just something, I remember making it just because I wanted to make a short and I was just wanted to show my friends. So it was the toy, the guy throws out his toy, it comes to life and tries to kill him. But really the idea just came from the fact that I liked the idea that a toy would just say these lovely, wonderful things on his voice box exclaiming messages of love and care whilst at the same time just getting happy with the the knife so that was kind of the core of the idea and it was a really simple idea but it went down really well at the festivals and um 
I remember hearing back from a couple of them. It, it won like an audience choice award and a couple of other awards. And we heard that the kind of, you know, the audience was going crazy for it. And I've made shorts since then, which are a bit more sort of experimental, a bit more brooding, ambiguous horror films. But we never got that reaction that we got from doing Eddie. So I always thought when it came to making a feature film, I thought, oh, yeah, it's fun. I mean, I, I got to see Eddie in an audience, um, you know, the year that we made it. And um, I remember the audience just really getting into it. And it's a nice feeling to have that kind of audience participation. It's like, if you make a drama, you don't always get that. You could make something amazing, but unless you actually ask people in the foyer afterwards, you wouldn't know. Um, so I like the idea of knowing whether, you know, it's very obvious with a comedy horror, if you've made something that's working or not. If you haven't, you know, it's just deathly silent in there and, um, you know, just make your slow escape to the exit. But um, if it's working, it's a really nice feeling. So I kind of wanted to do that um, for my first feature, but it didn't have the legs. So it was a complete rewrite. And so, yeah, sort of come up with the idea that, um, you know, it would be protecting Jack and that there would be more of this kind of love triangle between him and his, his girlfriend. Um, this was written back in 2013. And um, I say one of the most shocking things for me was when I went to watch the Child's Play reboot. That was in 2019. And this was just after I'd finished doing all the CG. I'd spent four years doing all the CG animation. I was just starting to do the composing for the film back then. And then I was like, oh my God, it's my film. It's like they've done, they've rebooted it, but it's protecting its owner rather than killing him. And there were so many different little plot points in the film that I thought reflected what we'd done. And I was really worried, but people don't seem to be picking up on that. I think it, because it's a very different take on the idea and it's very much comedy rather than horror and Benny's a very different personality it seems to be um hopefully existing as its own thing outside of that and plus it's, it's it's sort of more one of those unexplained mystical sort of things like what I what I did pick up on this besides the fact that watching the movie I got oh this is kind of in the same ballpark as child's play but there's enough different that it's not you know that, that you can watch the two and enjoy them on their own but the the big pulls that I got were all the Gremlins references you threw in here, because there is a lot of love for Gremlins and like everything from like kind of the fog with the the toy boxes to the the girlfriend yeah. giving the speech about why she doesn't like birthdays. Just that's sort of more of the 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 world I felt you were playing in, and it. Thank you. Yes, I mean the references. You know, I tried, I wanted to, to absolutely pack the film for the references, you know, because you wouldn't do that with the serious horror. But I think with the comedy horror, it's absolutely fair game. But I wanted the film to exist without them. So the first step was to write a film that worked with all the beats uh, and the scenes were all intact first. And then that was like a second or third pass of the script where I went back. I was like, right, now, how do we put some of this stuff under the surface so that some of it is really obvious to me? And then there's, like I say, there's people that pick up on so many of the different references and people that haven't picked up on some stuff that I think is glaringly obvious. Nobody's even mentioned. So it's uh, it's kind of interesting to hear what which ones people do pick up and which ones they don't. See, that's the key to putting that. I don't know why people don't approach references that way more often because like, especially in big tentpole filmmaking where you've got, oh, we got to see this, we got to see that. And it's like, well, why don't you just start, like you got to yeah. reverse engineer it in order for it to actually really work. Like it, sometimes you can, you can get away with a sly character name 
But then, you know, towards the end of a movie, like uh, Mortal Kombat, for example, they really lean on that Johnny Cage at the end. Yes, I haven't, is that, uh, you, you're talking about the remake. It hasn't come out. I don't think it's out here in the UK yet. So I haven't yeah. seen it. Um, but but I'm looking ah. forward to it. I'm looking forward to it because it's, it, it, what I've read is that it's one of those, you know, turn your brain off and just, just go with the ride. And it's a lot of fun. <laughs> oh, yeah. Lots of punches and, and brutality and just good, clean fun. <laughs> good, unclean fun. But in the same breath, while Benny is, you know, that light kind of comedy horror, you did sneak in also those those other kind of moments where, like, for instance, the hallway demon really got me. I was like, oh, my God, for, for a quick second. Oh, yeah. I mean, that is, that's probably oh. the only bit where I attempted to be marginally creepy in there. But, that, yeah, that was... Um, I think people, if people want like a scary film, they're going to be disappointed by this. It is very, very much uh, leans heavily on the comedy. There is bit, because there's a thing, right? When you've got something as stupid as this, running around and killing people, like you cannot make that scary. You can do the buildup. So it was all, the, the idea was, and you know, maybe the cat's out of the bag on this one, but was to build it up, especially that opening scene where she throws a toy out and it comes back for retribution. So the idea was to set the same thing up with Benny so that the audience are expecting one thing. And then we play the whole build up to that kind of, you know, a little bit mysterious and creepy. But once it's out of the bag, once you've seen what their relationship is and what Benny's prepared to do, you can't go back. You can't go back to it being a scary film because you would just be shooting yourself in the foot. And even trying to attempt to be scary, I, I mean, I wouldn't even know how to do it. So, so yeah, it was always meant to be that there's a couple of creepy moments in the build-up, but once he's ta-da, that's it. You're done. You're you're on a slightly different um, railroad track then for the rest of the film. That tone is always key, especially, I mean, even just in horror or comedy on its own. But when you mix the two together, that's just that's tap dancing on a a, a tightrope especially when it comes to tone because you don't want to scare people too much but so that way when the jokes come in there they play but at the same time you don't want people to be too lulled into a sense of security and then when you hit them with a kid losing their eyes it's all of a sudden ah by the way another good note for this universe you just let everyone have it here like dogs kids like no one is safe there's an interesting thing because I there was a some people get it and they're fine with it and but we've had some feedback where like oh no you've you think that killing animals is fun I'm out and and my response to that is <laughs> probably should say this but I think it's odd I think anybody that can say I'm very happy to sit here and laugh at kids being killed and women being killed but I will not laugh at animals being killed I'm like what's your problem because you either suspend your disbelief entirely and say this is all silly and funny. I mean, you're watching a horror comedy. You're watching, ideally, people being killed for humor. So if you if you draw the line and say, well, I'll laugh at that thing being killed, but I won't laugh at that being killed, that suggests to me there's perhaps some more deep psychological trauma going on there. And, and, I, and I'm just like, look, I love dogs, I really do. Um, and uh, you know there is a massive difference between, as everybody knows, violence on film and how it's played, and violence in real life. So yeah, I just looked at it that everything needs to be fair game if you're doing a horror comedy, and um, and it's done so cartoonishly. I think again, you've got to be careful how you manage it. If you're if you're focusing on long periods of suffering, that's a different thing. But in hours, it's very, it's almost cartoon-like violence, and I think. Um, 
you know, that opening scene where the girl gets slapped across the face and it's like Rocky being hit in the middle of the ring. You know, there's a slow-mo shot of spit coming out of her. You know, that tells you at this point that it's exaggerating. It's all, you know, this is not to be taken seriously. In many ways, if that scene had been played out with just a normal slap, it probably would have been worse because it would have felt more real. It would have felt, it wouldn't have felt over-egged. So that's the way I kind of approached the tone. And um, I tried, hopefully, I mean, I don't know, but I tried in the opening scene to set that tone and then run with it for the rest of the film. Um, because it's very, like you say, very difficult. Horror comedy is a hard thing to do writing tones and I'm not professing to have got that right. Or, you know, some, I'm sure some people won't go with it, but you have to manage that transition quite carefully throughout the film whereas if you make an ordinary horror film you're obviously just you're riding a straight line it's a dark scary film from the beginning and it is at the end so yeah it's 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 not an easy thing to do um and not everyone will agree with how you do it at the end of the day you can just my, my method is to set it up from the opening scene and then try to stay consistent with that you know throughout the rest of the movie and that dog tail is definitely cartoonish. Just the, the, I love the inserts of like the, the, the stuffy sort of getting nailed to the wall. And then it's just, by the time the corpse is being dragged, you know, it's clearly a doll and everyone can just be like, okay, we, we just really, you either, like you said, you either go with this or you don't. Yeah, it's not meant to look realistic. And I mean, again, the comedy probably wouldn't work as well. If it's that fine line, because it can't look, too fake but it can't look too real but I think as you say you get to a point in the film where it's like you know that's just a foam <laughs> that's just a foam prosthetic being dragged around on a lead and um to me that's funny but uh yeah <laughs> not for everyone it also fits in for stuff like severed heads yes well yeah yeah and that's the thing if you're gonna I mean I don't know how you guys feel about that but it's like if you if you've sat down to watch a horror comedy you've already suspended your disbelief right you're already saying i'm either up for finding all of this funny or i'm not and maybe everybody has the line drawn in a different place but yeah but for me it's like you know all of that stuff has to be funny so it was kind of a rule when i was writing it you know all of the all of the gory kills were done for laughs that you know they were never done for for like really gratuitous um shock value or you know there's not a scene in the middle of the film where Benny's just stabbing someone repeatedly <laughs> with a knife for five minutes in a wide shot <laughs> to make people go, oh, <laughs> you know, you have to keep up that kind of same level throughout. Nice big stings of the violin in there, you know, just to get everyone boiled. You said that the original short, you know, you, was, you used an Elmall doll. What kind of process do you have to go through for getting now Benny? Was it something, was it based off something else that you knew? Or this is just kind of like, it went through a whole creative process just like, Jack's creative process would have had been to create a toy. Yeah, similar because, um, you know, what, the one thing that I liked about um, Elmo was obviously he's got a very simplistic look. So we wanted to keep that and the red. The red contrasts very well when you, you, you know, especially when you're doing horror at night, a lot of this is set at night against blue light and it's a good complementary color to go off against that. So I always wanted to keep him red, but I wanted him to have a baby look. So he's got his little tooth at the front which is a very, this is here, so, you know, so it's a very, you know, the big wide eyes, like he's just woken up in the world, like, oh, and, uh, you know, static face. Um, but it was, the ears, again, those are put on because it's kind of designed in the functionality of it. For me, Benny was not just about how he looked, but it was about, like I say, it was a juxtaposition between what he said in his voice box and what he did. 
Um, and also he has a very dog-like quality, like he can he can understand extremely basic English, but his instincts get the better of him. Like if you if you tell a dog to sit, it will, but it's like, you know, if something, if a cat runs past, it's off. So, you know, all of those things I wanted to be built into him and, and, and particularly the movement was that he had no control over his limbs, that he didn't look like, like when Chucky moves or when Ted moves, but he looked like a child was playing with a toy. Like they would, someone had just grabbed him and done this from the back. And um, and again, to me, there was something inherently funny about something that couldn't control his limbs, but could kill somebody with deadly precision. See, that's just what really separates this again from anything like even the Child's Play reboot or even just just horror, most horror with dolls in general. There is a very play playfulness even in the movement of the toys. Yeah. And yeah. especially like some of those robots that you've created. Uh, uh, the AIDS gag, just that that was something that I, I literally, that, that was something that broke me early on. And that's like, literally, I would say that's the demarcation point of if this doesn't get you and tell you what this is, then you may need to look elsewhere for entertainment. Yes. I mean, no, look, you can't make a film for everybody, right? You can only make a film for yourself. And in, and in real life, I don't take a lot of things seriously, I try to have a lot of fun. And you know, there will be people that are upset by the, the, the combination of that and the dog and the, and the child. But it's like, my view is, you know, you, you, you're in a fantasy world. You're in a, you know, you're in a comical world. You're in a very childlike world. And the whole theme of the film is about a, a, a guy that is forced to grow up when actually, you know, he is a kid at heart and he's forced to bury all those things about himself in a basement. And Benny's meant to be, you know, a little bit like Bad Milo, this kind of, um, his inner emotions come bubbling to the surface, saying, no, no, you can't do that. You can't take everything that is your entire personality and all those fun aspects about you and just become this suited corporate adult. So in my experience, the way I approached the film was the film had to reflect that. It had to have a childlike quality to the film and to the jokes and to the playfulness. And it, and it all had to be part of that package for me. And so the, to me, the comedy is intrinsic to the actual theme of the film as well. Well, in, in flushing all that out, I mean, we, we keep saying things like child's play and, and other toys, but where is it also more of like maybe the, even though it's still comedy, the more adult version of like Toy Story, did it like you start like going like, oh, this is a kind of a different growing up that I'm thinking about. Yeah, no, no, very much. Like I say, there's, um, there's a lot of parallels between Jack and Benny because I mean, you could say there's parallels between me as well when I made the film, because I, I kind of had a midlife crisis at 40. You know, I'd spent all my life wanting to be a filmmaker and had never done it, partly because I didn't have the finances, the um, technical um, challenges of being able to put a film together. And I, and I got 40 and I was like, right, I'm going to do it. I'm going to make a film. So in many ways, that was that was me taking, a, a, you know, like a, a, an evolution and a step forward. And this, this character is doing the same thing. He's kind of forced to grow up, but he does it all in the wrong way. Yeah. And um, like you say, it's, um, it's, ve it's very much like Toy Story, but this is a, I always thought it was, the, the way I approached it was almost like an opposite of a man-child film, where those films are about somebody that, you know, they're a kid and then they learn to grow up and move on. Whereas this one was somebody that had to rediscover being a kid. And, and for me, that whole third act of the movie, when all the toys are fighting and uh, is kind of like, a, a, you know, he's playing with his toys again. He's rediscovered that um, love that he had for them, that he's kind of boxed away for it. And, and like you say, and then the, the, the end, I wanted it to have some heart. And some people, 
some people do get that some people do. i've had some people say oh it's just a load of silly fun and i've had some people say oh i i had i was crying at the end of the film but it was always my intention to put some heart into it as well and that this you know this is a story of uh, you know of, of somebody coming to age but just not in the in the way that might have been done in other movies before there's also a little bit of uh small soldiers in there like i don't mean to harp on the the joe dante sort of references here but it, it really very much like felt just the whole toy not so much a toy army but definitely like a toy battalion sort of fighting each other and then the humans are sort of like caught in the middle how hard is it to balance all of these duties when you're putting this movie together because you're the director you're the writer you're the star you i believe you said you scored the thing like i know you you have that nice credit at the end where it's like directed written by and other things yeah well we was this is a really small film you know it was self-financed it was shot at my friend's house um in in sort of like the the middle of the country and um it was made with myself my mum was on crew and um, uh, my uh, best friend, John. But for the, so for Monday to Friday, there was literally three of us. That, that, that was it. And then we scheduled some of the bigger scenes for the weekends. So we would have uh, my friend Mark come down, Pete would come down. So maybe like when the police turned up and that required, you know, more mouth to feed and, um, and you know, any scenes that like when the police car was there, that was like, okay, I need extra, I need extra help here. Can't, we can't have a three man crew to do these bits. But yeah, it was, it was an, it, all I can say to that is I did the best I could with the necessity. It was like, you know, I'm in the film because I couldn't afford to have somebody else in it. And it's not just a, a, about finances, but it's about logistics. You know, you're all in one house. And so you've run out of rooms. So you had to really carefully plan it so that, okay, when that actor comes down, we've got one spare room. Um, if I'd have had somebody play my part, we'd have needed to put somebody up in a hotel. So, yeah, I mean, but like you say, balancing those things was, I, I, I wouldn't have chosen to have done all those things myself, but it, it, was, uh, it was the only way that this film would get, would get made. But early on, we made a decision that I didn't want to put, if, you, if I'd have put my name down on the credits for everything where I did, it would have seemed like a, just this huge ego or vanity trip, and I didn't want that. And, and it was the same with the other crew members as well. It was, we sort of said, right, we'll have two credits each on something, or maybe three credits, but you know, I didn't want to be putting down like visual effects, Carl Hall, music. I don't even, I don't even think I'd mention that I do the music on there. Um, we even did, I even did the pop songs. There's two pop songs in the film. I was wondering about that. I was like, probably orders on music. Yeah, we, well, I created a fake um, band. I think they're called Control. And so I just said music by control, but that was that was us as well. So, <laughs> but yeah, it's a, it's a necessity, but balancing them, I mean, who knows? I did the best I could, but um, things are sacrificed when you're doing so many jobs. There's no, there's no doubt about that. You get diluted in certain areas and things don't go to plan. Well, yeah, but at the same point, this plays like you couldn't, you can't, really can't tell. Like this is another one of those examples where it's more bang for the buck, where it's just, it's, it plays so theatrically. And, you know, it's it, at the same time, you're like, yes, I know a small crew did this, but I didn't know like, you know, three people are there on set for most of this. And meanwhile, you could probably like someone gets $20 million and like a different, like a, a sizable crew, they could probably make a film like this. And you did it with three people and self-financing. And I just got to tip my hat to you because this is just it. There are no straight, you don't see the seams 
and everything that you've explained in the characters is is just it was meant to be so it's not like oh we're going for camp here it's like no it's hard work that's done with a purpose yeah well that's very nice of you to say I, I don't know what to say it's very kind of you but yeah I, I look I, I the way I approached it was this might be my only shot so if that's the case just do the best that you can so you know I, I spent like over six months on the script the first script that I wrote was like a 10 million dollar movie and then it was like well let's pare it all down and then and even though it's a silly comedy horror and I'm not taking away from it, some people just watch it and say it's a load of nonsense it's a load of fun and that is fine if that's the the level you enjoy it on that's perfect as well but I wanted to try and put other things in there and have you know um lots of setups and payoffs and little themes that ran throughout it and like you say all the all the references put in and mixing up the styles and just trying to have fun with it as I was making it because I thought you may never get this chance again so just you know yeah do, do the best that you can and I didn't think it would take me five years but once you get about two and a half years into it you think I'm here now <laughs> I can't stop for a, penny and for a pound yeah it also must be great to be able to now go into a meeting with somebody and you know they're interested in hiring you for a project and say i did this all on my own for nothing imagine what i could do if you just give me a few dollars well um that hasn't happened yet (laughs) (laughs) no i the the only person i've been in a in a meeting with is um my mom so (laughs) yeah maybe i mean i guess my my concern about this is obviously when you dilute yourself so thin the question from people is well what do you want to be you know mm-hmm. what, what's what, what is your actual goal because you know you're probably never going to do all these tests on another film again do you, I, I, did you want to be an actor did you want to be a writer do you want to be an editor you know and then maybe you get overlooked because you've done so many different things and like I said earlier as well you you know those things are sacrificed you know I, I look at my directing of this and I'm just like you know because there was there were days there there were scenes which were storyboarded and they're fine but there's so much of this film that wasn't and I just thought it's it's fine I'll work it out on the day you know we'll 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 come up with something on the day and then the day starts and it's just fires everywhere you're putting out the fires you don't know what's going on and then when you come to shoot the scene um you just revert to instincts and it's shot very basically you know, and what you really need is you want to just lock yourself in a room for half an hour and just think of, right, how's the camera going to move? What's the real feeling of this moment? And, and I think for me, a lot of that, not all of it, but a lot of it was made up in the edit um, because it was just shot so quickly on the day. It's just that you're literally just trying to get through the pages. And so you're not being creative. Um, and I thought I'd have time to do that. And then you realize you don't. So yeah, some things will suffer, but hopefully it gives people the impression that I can do the big picture at least, you know, I've got a good idea of, you know, of course the cinematography could, could be better, you know, you know, of course somebody would have been better in the main role than me, but, you know, hopefully they can step back and see that there's, um, you know, given the right um, instruments, we could put something together. You know, we talked about, you know, again, you know, the, the gremlins, uh, you know, child's play, all these things that kind of interact with this film. But, you know, here over Overdue Rentals, we do like to talk about the things that kind of inspired us that maybe kind of got forgotten in the past. Is there a film that kind of inspired you when you were younger that you think people don't pay attention to anymore? I really love the remake of The Blob. 
1988 remake of The Blob. I think it is so, I actually will go, I will go this far. I will say it is a classic. It is a classic and nobody talks about it. And I think it is just brilliant. I mean, I, I don't know, I wouldn't know where to start with it, but it's so well written. I mean, it's written by Frank Darabont. Yep. I mean, you know, screenwriting legs forever. And um, it's just so well constructed, you know, from the, from the way they um, construct the characters, every single scene has got a runner in it that pays off at the end of the movie. It is, uh, it's just one of those examples. And, and, and I guess the other thing is, is and, and, and this isn't disparaging to any of the horror films today, but you know, there's very much a trend today that horror films are, are much more thematically driven. And that theme is often very much on the surface of the movie. So the, the, you know, the, the, the films are about somebody getting over a trauma or, you know, and, these, and, the, and the, the horror is a manifestation, a literal manifestation of that trauma. And the blob has none of that. It is just a creature feature done as well as you possibly could make it. Um, and it, it doesn't really have a theme, unless you say the theme is, oh, the government are all shits. I mean, that's, that's, that's <laughs> really the, 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 there's no deep, really meaningful thing to it. And yet it is still executed fantastically. Um, and I think they did the best, you know, a $10 million movie as well. Like that wouldn't wow. happen today. Nah. You wouldn't get a film with that kind of budget, um, you know, with that subject matter. You know, this this now would today would be like a one or two million dollar movie. Um, so has production waiting to happen. Yeah, there's. So, I mean, I assume you guys are, you're very well aware of this. Oh, oh yeah, oh yeah. I watched it all the time when I was a kid. Oh, did you? Yeah. Well, I was. See, I was as a child. I necessarily wasn't like afraid of horror movies or anything like that. But I was much more of the the ilk of like the more underground type of feel than like the Nightmare on Elm Streets, the Friday the 13th, so on and so forth. And I remember seeing the remake of The Blob and I had seen the original Blob at that point too. Um, and just being, cause we sit, how many people now sit and talk every day about the special effects in The Thing or David Cronenberg's version of The Fly, but nobody really gives any credit to what they yeah. did in the 88 Blob. Cause when you see the bones and the people inside of it, that's that's what I want to see. That's what I want to see now. It's what I want to see every time I see any type of movie. It was brilliant. Say so they don't hold back. There's even a you know this, uh, I can't remember the name of the kid. One of the kids gets absolutely mangled, and he just doesn't get dragged off. Well, he does. He gets dragged off into the um, sewer. Yeah. But then he comes back like and all of his face hanging off, and it's and it's like whoa, you like. Well, the one when the one that's attached to the grate of the ceiling when she looks up, up too. As you just kind of see all the like the bones and everything, it's just like it looked so real. It just it just blew me away. The projector yeah. room kill, the projector yeah. room kill where that that guy is just the face is so plastic and just you see what the blob is doing to him, like just it's it it, it you're right. It's amazing and it is very much in league with like the stuff that they were doing with the fly or the thing. And for th this movie. Like, if you just look at it on the surface, it's like, oh, it's a remake of The Blob in the 80s. So a remake done contemporary style. Oh, I don't know if I want to watch that. But you take a look at this. It is a very timeless sort of feel. Like, there, uh, there's little things here and there that could probably artifact it as, oh, it's an 80s movie. But they don't lean on it. And another thing I really liked about it is these are characters. They're not all tropes like the tropiest you get is the government 
scientists. And yeah. that's, you know, you got to move the plot along a little bit. I understand that. But the kids, it's like, they're not just hornball. Like you get one hornball in this movie. And in the 80s, one hornball in a horror movie is like, wow, you're holding back. And they play that hornball quite interestingly as well, because they 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 don't play him as a hornball that we should like. They play him as one we we actively dislike. And what's like, I love this that little bit where he's got the girl in the car and he says to her, <laughs> you know, you're wearing my ring, you're my girl. And then he goes back out to the boot of the car, plying her with alcohol. And then he closes the little box, which has got like a hundred rings in it. And it's like <laughs> little touches like that that I just think the screen, I mean, you were talking about the projector kill, but again, very small thing, but the first time you see the projector guy, he's doing this with a yo-yo. But the way they affect the scare is when he walks into the room, the yo-yo comes down and that's what gives you the, the jolt. And it's just, it feels like every fiber of the film has been really thought about. Like you say, you know, it's not just a script, somebody written in two weeks. They absolutely went over this with a fine tooth comb. It's so layered, it's, it's really well done. And I forgot how much I loved uh, not only Frank Darabont, but Chuck Russell, because yeah. I, when I was looking into the, the research for this, it's like, I'm surprised it took me this long because when I was a kid, I loved Chuck Russell's The Mask. But then when I got into uh, Friday the 13th, it's like, oh, wow, he did Nightmare 3. Yep. And then in another sort of weird sadness, this movie went up against Nightmare 4. So in a sense, Chuck Rose is kind of competing with himself because th that's that's the success of um, that movie built itself on his success. And then he's like, hey, I'm over here doing this. It's like, but but Freddy Krueger's right here. Yeah. But Freddy. Yeah, we want Freddy. I know. I, I, but this is like, <laughs> this is his heyday, right? Because 87, um, Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors, which I also saw, I would never knew this before, but Chuck Russell and Frank Darabont have got writing credits on that as well. Yeah, yeah. So they must have done that in '87, got on like a house on fire, and said, "Right, let's let's remake the blob together." And Frank Darabont and Chuck Russell um, sat and worked out the story for that as well. Um, but yeah, I think the blob made like I think I looked today; it was like eight million at the box office, and Elm Street yeah. Three made forty-five million. So there was never going to be a sequel to this thing, and it is a real, real shame because, um, like I said, they don't make films like that anymore. And, and at the time, it was a stellar example. I know you, you were talking about the effects earlier. Obviously, I mean, the one that we haven't talked about is the opening scene when Paul, and again, what's great about that is they set him up as the protagonist. They do a bit of a psycho, don't they? They kill who you think is gonna be the protagonist off 20 minutes into the movie. And they don't just kill him. They dissolve the fuck out of him. <laughs> He's absolutely this thing. You know, that uh, you see him dissolving inside it while screaming for help. And she goes to grab his arm and she pulls his arm out and it dislodges off him. Um, that, yeah. that, that to me is probably one of the most impressive effects. Because that was when I first watched that, I was like, oh, wow, they're, they're really not holding back here. So it, it took me back because of how great the effects were, but also the fact that I did not expect them to kill the main character. And the guy that they've been setting up with, the bad guy, has a bit of a switcheroo in personality and starts to come to the fore. So there's uh, there's too much good stuff about it. There really is. Well, it's, it's one of the, you know, again, it's, there are so many films that are fantastic back when they were made, talking about like the original blob, talking about the original like Vision of the Body Snatchers per se. And while they were great in their time, they needed that update. And just because at the time, people maybe would not have been ready for it being gorier or more illicit in those visuals, they needed to be done and they all were done right when they first were remade. 
yeah and this there was the right time to do this because i mean i actually feel like now would be a good time to make a blob film because the special effects have moved on so much because there are some effects that do stand out in the blob but you can hardly fault them they used every trick in the book on this there are there is stop motion there's miniatures there's you know full-size blob blankets um they did a lot of reverse um photography um prosthetics and yes there's a couple of dodgy green screen shots but i mean you know <laughs> it was the 80s what are you going to do but um yeah, I feel like nobody would make a film like this now. They certainly wouldn't make it that expensive, that gory. But in terms of a film that, like you say, can be updated every 20 or 30 years, it's something that I think you can always get. And the other thing is, is that it's hard to make a film where the antagonist has no personality. You know, Freddy Krueger can carry an entire movie. You don't need, I mean, I, you know, I'd argue that as the Freddy films you know, went on later in their stages, the characters were completely inconsequential. Everybody was there for Freddy. It was just like, what's yeah. Freddy gonna say? How's Freddy gonna kill somebody? But when you've got just a blob, it has no personality, you, you have to make sure those characters are much stronger. And I think that's one of the reasons I love the film as much as I do, because like, like you said earlier, it doesn't take them for granted. You know, there's one horn dog in it and, and, and the rest of them are really <laughs> relatable people. Well, it's also comparable to The Terminator, where you go to that first movie, Arnold Schwarzenegger doesn't have a lot of personality to that character. It's just kill, kill, kill. And to that, to the credit of what you just said, you had to have, you know, Linda Hamilton playing Sarah Connor and Michael Bean playing Kyle Reese. And you needed this assortment of characters to sort of build that mythos. So by the time Terminator 2 comes in, the twist was okay. He's not only not just killing, but now he has a little more of an emotion. Yes. And then by the time they got to the third one, they didn't know what to do. Um, I was having this conversation <laughs> with somebody earlier because um, somebody asked me, oh, was, was I going to make a Benny too? And I said, I mean, not right now, who knows? But I said it was written as a one film movie. And I think that's the thing that's plagued the Terminator films was Cameron wrote that as if not a one, a two arc film. And they've been trying to reboot the shit out of it ever since, and they can't. And part of that is because the story has been told. Well, yeah, that's the, sto that's the story versus the character. Like, when you look at the vision of the Body Snatchers or, or the Blob, they are singular concepts that you can adapt to any sort of time. Whereas Terminator, the lore gets too bogged down, and it needs to be rebooted and rewritten. You don't know what timeline you're on. Do we kill John Connor this time? Is he a Terminator this time? Is John Connor Benny? I want an answer on that one. Is John Connor Benny? <laughs> yes. <laughs> there we go. All right. John Connor's Benny. This is officially a cinematic universe. That Roscoe at the end meant something. But it's like, like you said with Terminator, the interesting thing is, I wonder, I, I've often wondered, I, I mean, obviously I love Arnold Schwarzenegger. I think he's great. But when your franchise becomes about a singular person, and I think this is why they've struggled with the Alien franchise, because that film was as much about Sigourney Weaver and Ripley as it was about the aliens. Oh, um, yeah. Whereas, and, and, and that's the thing with the Terminator. It's so latched on, uh, iconic with Arnold Schwarzenegger. And that's why I think like a film like The Blob can work again, because, you know, The Blob is The Blob. And it really revolves around the other characters. It's not, you're not making a figurehead of the antagonist like you are in, um, you know, Terminator. So it could be remade, who knows? I wonder where though it lies in the remake where nowadays 
pays, it would probably go to Jerry Bruckheimer's company where they'll have like one kind of well-known star in it and a bunch of people that kind of don't pull in box office where even though people didn't know Matt Dillon, uh, Kevin Dillon back then, um, you know, people could go back to visit it now going, oh, well, I know Kevin Dillon because, uh, because of uh, Entourage and all this other stuff. And Shawnee Smith was big at the time. This was probably the kickoff for Frank Dauerbaum's relationship with Jeffrey DeMond. And they have dealt dealt close as well. You had, had a pretty stacked cast there for the time. Yeah, no, no, you're you're you're, you're absolutely right. And I think now, if you're talking about Jerry Bruckheimer adapting the book, can you imagine a Jerry Bruckheimer the block? <sighs> I mean, one a it would be Doom's disaster. It would be Platinum Doom's. I could remember. <laughs> it would be the the, the the blob would be orange. Um, everything <laughs> everything would be in silhouette with an orange filter on, and. Um, you would get one shot of a bit of blood going up the wall. <laughs> no, that'd be a total PG-13. Yeah. Let's pack the kids in. It would be just bereft of, of and then they would probably give the blob a voiceover. <laughs> You'd probably get like, Sean Bean could be the blob and it gets to talk to people. No, that's too good. Sean Bean, that's too good. That's, that's genius. Sean Bean I would watch the blob that. genius. In this podcast, it's not going to get any better than, than Sean Bean voicing the, the remake to The Blob. We've peaked, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. There's nowhere to go from here. <laughs> Marvel, please hire us. I believe you've done it. You're just, you're just in one minute, you swiped it all out. We're done. It, it, it's safe to say it, it wouldn't be good. It wouldn't be good. But like you said, that's, I mean, that's the thing. Could it be? Could it be made again? Yes. Would it? No. It would cost too much money. It, it, you know, we all want it to be an R rating. Uh, a film like this now would be a $1 million film that would go into Shudder. So it, it wouldn't have the production value that it has. I don't think, I mean, what would, I mean, what would 10 million in the 80s be now? I don't know, a $40 million film maybe, but. Probably. Yeah. No like that gonna, sounds about right. No one's going to throw that money into this. And that's why I think it's sort of, it, it deserves a revisit from a lot of people. Oh, and plus you think the box office calendar is crowded now? I looked at the weekend this opened. Cocktail's number one. Cocktail, Die Hard still on the charts. Fish Called Wanda, Nightmare on Elm Street 4. Bambi and Crocodile Dundee beat this movie. Wait, is the scene not just Bambi? Or was it just like a re-release? <laughs> it was a story? Bambi re-release. Re-release. Oh, okay. Yeah, because they Disney loved to re-release back then. And I'm just still in awe that like, okay, maybe you should have released this on another weekend. But you think back to the 80s, they probably thought, oh, the blob has brand recognition because you're only about maybe 20, 30 years removed from the original. It's like, okay, yeah, the blob for the 80s. It's like the new Coke for the blob. <laughs> the new Coke. Yeah, and that's, but like you say, that's the sad thing about it is that it is a really good film that got lost. And I know you could maybe compare this to the thing actually that, you know, actually fell off the wayside because of E.T. And I was, you know, I've seen Carpenter interviewed a few times about that. And people say, you know, do you love the fact that it's been rediscovered and everybody now thinks it's a classic? And he says, no, because I think it damaged his career so badly at the time. You know, having a box office flop, having the reviews that said it was just gore for gore's sake and all, all that nonsense. And um, but yet now it is found probably obviously because of Carpenter's legacy and influence, but it's it's found its place among the classics. But this film hasn't. And um, and I do really think it's, um, you know, it's up there with, um, you know, oh, you know, it's fun. It's not going to it's not going to really scare you, but it's a real kind of 
there's a there's a propulsion underneath it as well where you know it moves from i mean just the scenes like when they're trying to escape from it there's that scene where they this the projection scene is really good it's all strobing and she finds that yes. on the floor and she turns her face and all the faces melting off and then they run to the exit but then he gets his jacket stuck in the exit and that's another one of those little runner earlier on that his zip doesn't do it properly now it's quick get the jacket off him because the door's gonna come through it does falls into the alley they go into the sewer you think they're safe but then the blobs tendrils come through the sewer and come down it's like a it's, it, it, it's got this propulsion underneath it, this energy and drive, which I think is um, uh, is unmatched in some of today's horror movies. It's it's so strange thinking about it because, you know, we talk about the 80s. I mean, of course, there's great movies every, you know, time period there is. But a lot of pe people think of the 80s and everything seemed kind of like a joke in a way, but it was the prime time for these great remakes, because we mentioned them, we mentioned them all already, but you think about The Blob, The Thing, The Fly, they, I mean, Vage of Ice Snatchers was 78, but still, like, these were peak cinema for sci-fi genre films that were all probably kind of really should top other films. No, I agree completely. And, and like you say, I was about to say it was a mystery why this one didn't do well, because obviously being a kid, my first um, exposure to this was just me raiding the video stores every Friday night and I think I watched a trailer for it and it was um you know it was one of those the, the wicked voiceovers that the 80s had you know if it had a face you could see it you could you know terror has no shape and it was this I remember watching the trailer and just going oh this looks amazing and um I was so excited to watch it and it, so it came out on VHS and at the time I was you know I was too young to go to the cinema anyway so I was unaware that it had been this huge failure at the box office um I watched it, for, I rented it on the Friday, and I think I watched it four times before I had to go <laughs> and return it on, on the Saturday. And plus, that was back when cover art was cover art. I mean, I think the original, if I'm not mistaken, the original blob cover art was that the, the pink blob with like, it, I don't know if it was Billy, but it was someone in it. And that's all you got. Yeah. Whereas now they probably take the shot from the trailer where it's just the vacuum formed logo. And that's it. Although I am glad Shout Factory re-released this movie. And something that was really funny was you look at that front cover, uh, Flag, Matt, uh, Kevin Dillon's character kind of looks like he's a Prince fan. He looks like he's, he's emulating a little purple. <laughs> look up the cover and, and look at it. Right, it I'm looking it up now. Because it's his pose with the, the motorcycle, the hair, and then the jacket. It's almost like this kind of looks like Purple Rain. And then when Matthew told me that we were doing Benny and the Blob, watching Benny and then hearing Richard do all the, the Prince references, <laughs> it's like, oh, this, this could have been better. There's Prince references. They're not afraid to kill kids. Uh, maybe there's oh, more. God, I've not even thought about this. Maybe, maybe you've tapped into my, maybe this film hit my subconscious much harder and made it into this film than I ever thought possible. Well, that was another thing I wanted to throw in. Is just for for Benny on for one second. Is charge oh, yeah. like it? Does he not know Prince died, or <laughs> or is he just you know indulging yeah. himself? So so yeah. So here's the absolute reality of this. We shot this in 2014. Prince was very much alive. Oh, and I got into the edit suite, and about a year into the edit, I remember contacting the actors and saying. I know I said I'd have this film ready for the following year, but 
all the work that I've got to do. It's probably going to take me two years to do it. And then that went to three years and then that went to four years. And I remember in 2016, I, um, I rang up um, the actor that plays Rashad. And I was like, Prince is dead. <laughs> How <laughs> selfish of him. <laughs> <laughs> it, can, it ruins our film so I was like I don't but I, I kind of think like well he's the sort of character that would get excited by a Prince tribute act so I think we'll have to go yeah. we'll have to go with that just do the reshoot where they said you know for the for the DVD later on so, sorry Richard he died what yeah <laughs> died? I'll tell you what the thing that did make me think oh my god people are going to think we're real piss takers here is that, as far as I remember, Prince died in a lift. And in our film, the lift doors open and he's like, he's resurrected and he comes bursting out of these lift doors. And I thought, I hope people don't think we're taking the piss out of that. This is way before that happened. You know, it's funny is that somebody's gonna, somebody wasn't even thinking of it, they're gonna find this and they're gonna be like, he did it, he did it on purpose. We know he did it on purpose. You know, I, I, I'll take all the blame, I'll take it all. Carl is working for the deep state. He not only knows about the Blob Project, but he knows that they've resurrected Prince as a white man, and they don't want you to know. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. But I, I was really worried about that one. I honestly thought, oh, God. I was actually going to put... Um, I, I was going to put a little disclaimer at the start of the film that said, this film was shot in 24... Like, just, just imagine a smoky background, and then, like, Comic Sans font. It just comes up. This film was shot in 2014. Fades off, comes back on. Prince lives, and then fades <laughs> back off. And then we just go into the film. And I thought that would really confuse people. And I toyed with the while for putting it there. But I thought, no, there's there's enough confusion. Maybe not. But it was it was going through my mind. <laughs> well, you know, you could have done also feel like you know sometimes those YouTube videos nowadays where people do the whole video and forget to put something in. So like a little flash comes up on that time during the screen, during the, the scene, just as a film for Prince is dead. And then just goes away, a little asterisk on it. <laughs> and then every other reference, yeah, still dead. Unfortunately, still dead. Purple Rain is still a, a banger. Uh, <laughs> yeah. oh, that would have been brilliant. I'll consult you guys next time I'm in an edit pickle. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, well, that's kind of one of our services here at Overdue Rentals. We never knew we provided, but we certainly will going forward. Mike's full of them today. He's got everything. I don't know what happened. <laughs> well, just it's that's one of the things that I really like about just watching a movie and then just seeing when you know when you pick up on on just the slightest bit of a reference, then you sort of look for more. And then even when you're preparing for an interview, you're picking up on, okay, what can I ask about? And then little things, and then eventually a picture starts to form and it's like, this movie is like a handshake to other people that have loved this sort of film. And obviously, you know, whether intentionally or not, yeah, I feel like your love of the blob did kind of inform you as a filmmaker. And it, yeah, it just, it, these two play really well together. Although I would probably swap the watching order because you probably want to watch The Blob first, get all creeped out and depressed, and then watch Benny Loves You and just go for the full, the full laugh. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happy if that's the case. If the, if the Blob has influenced me. I'd like to say I hadn't thought about it until, you know, um, yeah, until literally today. And um, so, yeah, if it has influenced that film, then I'm, I'm, I'm more than happy 
um, I'm proud of that because, like I say, it's one of, it's one of those ones that really influenced me when I was a kid. Sort of that that and the Elm Street films um, was with things that I just sort of watched over and over and over. And as you say, you don't often know what you've put into the film because other people have said things like, "Oh, I spotted this reference in Ben," and um, I'll go. Did I? Did I put that in? And then you start to wonder, oh, you just say, oh, yeah, of course, that was on purpose. I put that one in on purpose, even though I don't remember it. But then there are things that you've, you've put in subconsciously or things that you've done and then you've forgotten because there's so many things that you put in there. There's a couple that, have, that I was like, oh, God, that's referencing this film. And I totally forgotten about it. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, I think it's five years ago as well. That's the thing, you know, when I, when I shot this in 2014, and when you get stuck in the edit, you only begin to watch the film in a certain way. It's a, diff it's a different thing when you're editing a movie. You don't, a lot of those details just fall away and, and just blur into the background. So um, it's nice to have them pointed out because I'm like, oh yeah. <laughs> Even the theme kind of, I listen to that theme. It almost sounds like the Nightmare on Elm Street theme. Now that you mentioned Nightmare, because it sounds close to that. Dun, yeah. dun, dun, yeah. Yeah, it's totally that. It's it it it, it it's totally a riff. <laughs> the 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 end credits is um is Halloween, but it's um well I say it's Halloween. What I did was I took a song that was in the five four time signature, that just modulated down um, key changes, which is what is exactly what Halloween does. But it's just a different tune. But because it's a five four time signature tune that goes down the keys, it just instantly brings up um memories of Halloween but that, and there's other stuff in there as well but yeah even musically there is there's so much stuff in there that's influenced from other movies that I love. Well thank you so much for, for joining us to talk about it and talk about Benny Loves You and The Blob which is The Blob is also a great choice because it's Mike and I have a list of like 400 some odd films you want to talk about and somehow we didn't get it on the list until you mentioned it I'm like how did I miss The Blob? <laughs> I don't get it. So there's great. always room for The Blob. So underrated. It really is. Thanks again. Yes, thanks for thanks for having me, you guys. It's been really lovely to chat, and um, hopefully we'll chat again in the future. Absolutely, that'd be great. Right. Take care, guys. That was Carl Holt. Um... Thank you, Carl. Thank you, Carl. So much for you, especially since I mean, again, it wasn't like midnight or something like that, but he was in the UK. So uh, by yeah. the time we were talking to him, it was about coming close to 10 p.m. his time. Which so thank you for you know keeping going late with the interviews to to fit, fit us in. Yeah, especially for a film like uh, Benny Loves You, because honestly, I really, I really dig the vibe he put into this. And plus for as little as he was working with and just the, the motivation behind this movie, I, I can't get behind it anymore than I already am. Yeah, I mean, I know. I mean, I, I knew going in that it was, you know, it, you know, quote unquote, really independent, but I didn't realize how independent it was and how long he's been working on it. Um, I mean, really was... I mean, yeah, he had help, but he was really a one-man band here in more ways than one. Yeah, and just that that whole story about the the multi-year editing that eventually left that Prince joke uh, in in, a, in an interesting position. I it I I I still proclaim it plays because just Richard is that kind of guy. Yeah, I mean, it's also it's funny. You know, we didn't mention it, but you know, it's not like it had a time frame on the movie. It didn't say this takes place in so-and-so no. year you know this could have been technically if you think about it i mean i didn't look at i didn't look at car models too quickly too too much i guess dawn's car was the only one you saw in the daylight 
Um, yeah. There's nothing to suggest that it had to be even, you know, in the 2010s. You know, it could have been 2003 or something. Who knows? Yeah, it was just very contemporary. Yeah, and yeah. and again, it's just this was a really interesting incidence of kismet where the movie that were was being promoted kind of lined up with the movie that was picked as the overdue rental because just that same renegade energy that was in the vlog like even though they may have had a little more they had more of a budget obviously that was probably something where it's still even in 1988 or 1980 whenever they shot it money was still kind of not a lot but not fair threadbare and yeah that would probably, that yeah, probably they, would... they stretched it they made it work you know that's some it's, again it's a film that you don't necessarily think came out the year it came out except for you know the hairdos that's a, that's about it like honestly the, <laughs> hey i stand by the hornball rule in the 80s you tend to have especially if you're early in the 80s you tend to have a lot of hornballs in your horror movie they only had one so clear, and they stretch that. They literally stretch that. Yeah, it's um, it's it's. I would consider it a classic that doesn't get the classic status. No, absolutely. It's like you think about late '80s horror. It was moving towards you know, fre- like that. You had nightmare. You were on Nightmare on Elm Street four at that point, and it was moving towards a little sillier, a little more grandiose. What kind of kills can we throw in there? Whereas the blob is just, we've got a blob and it eats things and it dissolves them. Oh, and it does it. Yes. Oh, just, you could could probably go, you know, if we were doing our Patreon right now, I would probably propose a ranking of the kills in the blob because- Coming soon to a Patreon, we we will start eventually. Yeah, you know what? We'll probably have to pencil that in for the future because you could just- the projection kill that first kill with billy like i i never thought about the fact that that was the psycho moment like i maybe it's because i heard i like i had heard about the movie and i kind of knew and plus you kind of it's i think if you when you rent it on youtube the first clip that they show you is uh when you're looking at it to to rent the first clip they show you is the immediate aftermath like when shawnee smith is being taken out of the the hospital with her Mm -hmm. parents and by the way, poor Shawnee Smith and her relationship with guys named Flag, because it was only a couple of years after that that she was in the stand and she was one of yeah. Randall Flag's disciples. Well, you know, sorry she had to deal with that, but it's, it's acting. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I've always enjoyed Shawnee Smith. Oh, no, absolutely. And, you know, and, and you know. I, I'm not gonna. I, I'm not gonna even mention it though, because she's in another film that I want to talk about eventually. But I don't want. I don't want to ruin it. A more oh. famous film that she's been in? No, it's it's much more of a not famous film. It's <laughs> oh, oh, I'm excited. I'm excited. I think it's on the list. It's not. I'll tell you. I'll tell you later. But we will be having a Patreon eventually soon, and I think even better. Write us at write us at overduerentals@gmail.com. Tell us how much you would donate. For us to cameo Sean Bean to be the voice of the blob. Oh, oh, beautiful, beautiful, beautiful callback. I don't know if Sean Bean's on cameo, but we'll get, if we get enough money, I'm sure we can hire him for a few minutes to do some voiceover for the blob. Oh, then we're gonna have to we're gonna have to dig deep for that because then we're, all right, we may have to get Carl back because. 
Oh, oh no, we will. We call, he'll he'll have to he'll have call back to, to join in for that. Yeah. Well, yeah, but the thing is, we'll have to like, he'll have to help us create the blob. And then we're going to have to write that blob's like lines together. We'll give it like a really good cracking scene that Sean Bean can really dig into. Oh, I thought we were just going to overdub the original movie. Or that. No, you know what? Let's, that's smart money. That's smart money. But Carl will be involved anyway because he's a big fan of uh, big fan of the Blob, and why shouldn't he be? Oh yeah, no, no, and and what maybe what we'll do is we'll have Carl voice. Uh, I don't want to give it away. We're we got obviously we've got ideas cooking. We've got plans, schemes. This is merely the beginning, and if you want to be in on it, quick hit at the post again on Twitter at Rentals Overdue, on Facebook at Overdue Rentals, on Instagram at Overdue Rental Show and emailing us at overduerentals at gmail.com. We are ready to believe you. And I'm pointing at the camera that you can't see. Oh, but one day you shall. One day you shall. So thank you for joining us. Make sure you cross the Blob 1988 remake off your Overdue Rentals list. Make sure you check out Benny Loves You this weekend. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to seeing you next time. And until next time, clever catchphrase. The Blob. <laughs>